Hello, and welcome to Speculum, a show where we open up and inspect the most sensitive topics in medicine. Uh, my name's Alyssa. I am a second-year medical student that just wants to make the medical community a bit of a brighter place. Uh, today, I have a very special guest with me, a colleague and friend who previously worked on a crisis line. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, Alyssa, thank you for having me here today. I'm Abby. I'm a second-year medical student, as you already said. Did you? I said I was, but it's okay. You are too. We are colleagues. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, so I'm also a second-year medical student, and um, in undergrad, I had... Um, the privilege of volunteering on a crisis line where I logged about 500 hours taking calls. And so I'm here today to discuss a bit about that. Great. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit about how you got into this kind of work? Like what drew you to it? You know, that's, that is a great question. Um, uh, to be perfectly honest, I saw an ad and I thought, wow, this looks really cool. And that's originally what drew me to it. And, uh, as I thought about it a bit more, um, you know, I realized that it was often, often the person that people seemed to come to, you know, when they were in crisis themselves. And yet I didn't really feel that I had the skills um, that I needed or that I wanted to be able to support people. And so in this way, I thought if I volunteer on the crisis line, I'll be able to gain some skills that will be useful also in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And have you found those skills to be useful in your personal life? Yes, on many occasions. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you saw this ad and you're like, that's something I want to do. Uh, where did it go from then? Um, it went from there to the application process. Um, so there were a few rounds um, to that. And so I, I wrote up my application. I sent that off and went through a few interview rounds. And then the rest is history. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't mind my asking, what was kind of the training like for becoming a crisis line worker? Uh, the training was fairly intense, um, quite involved. I can't remember uh, the number of hours that went into training, but I would say there were easily at least 50 hours of training that we went through. Um, and so that involved quite a bit of class learning and role plays and so on, and then also um, actual practice as well. So, mm -hmm. Was it nerve-wracking? That sounds like something being kind of going from training getting and then getting thrown into actual calls sounds like it would have been a stressful situation yeah it's a bit of a jump for sure you know you go from uh practicing and mostly with people that by this point you've gotten to know fairly well because it's a a small you know fairly tight-knit group when you're going through training and then one day it's like, okay the training wheels are coming off and you know you're now on the crisis line um and so yeah it was a bit of a leap but i think that the training worked really well and um, you know, it's kind of like what I'd imagine learning CPR. I've, I've actually never had to, um, do CPR, although I worked as a, um, as a volunteer medic for a number of years as well. But, you know, they say that you practice and then when it actually happens, the, the adrenaline kicks in and it's all the, uh, you know, the, the memory of it. Right. And I think it's, it's kind of similar. You practice these skills and then when you need them, they just, they're there. So that's what you hope for. <laughs> I, yeah, sometimes I get a little, like we've been trained in CPR enough times as we have to be, to be, you know, healthcare providers, but yeah, I've never had to do it either. So I always wonder what would happen that one time that you just get thrown into it and you're the only one that knows CPR and ugh, it sounds kind of stressful. You don't want to like forget what you're doing or <laughs> something.
Yes, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trusting that what everyone tells us is true. And from my experience in the, in the crisis line, it, it is. So, um, you know, I think when you are the only person and you're in that situation and you're like, I don't remember, you know, what the protocol is or I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do, you become incredibly resourceful and you realize very quickly what all you are capable of when you are the person. I guess it's all that adrenaline. <laughs> I have to do something. Yeah. Just, like, just do it, right? Okay. Um, so I've always like been curious about kind of the background workings of a crisis line. Like what did a typical shift look like for you? Like how many calls did you get? When was it busiest? Uh, kind of what did that look like? How long were your shifts? Mm -hmm. Um, well, without giving too much information, uh, crisis lines are 24 seven. So, um, you know, you would work, um, either four hours or eight hours at a time, typically night shifts, you would do as a full eight hours. Uh, whereas other times of the day would be four hours at a time. And, you know, I, I really can't give you a number for a call, the number of calls, because there was such a variability. And I think this is true of all, um, call centers, you know, you can have, a very quiet day or a quiet morning and a really busy afternoon. Um, but in general, in my experience, uh, night times tend to be very busy. And um, my other experience from a couple of years of working, I would frequently work the day after a holiday, is um, that those tend to be extremely busy. And that might be because, um, you know, holidays can be rough on anyone. but. You know, for example, you had Christmas and, um, you know, you spent it with, with family or by family, I mean, you know, the people that you were close to, not necessarily your, your family, family. And, uh, but you know, the next day you realize it wasn't what you were expecting or, um, you know, things just didn't quite yeah go as you were expecting. And that can be a time that's really difficult for people, or that can be a time when they realize how isolated they feel. And so the day after a holiday tends to be um, very busy. Yeah. Holidays can be stressful. I understand that. So that makes sense. I think we, we as in me and what I assume the rest of the public, we kind of assume that crisis lines are often for people that are considering suicide, but I'm sure that's not the whole story. So what kind of things do slash can people call a crisis line about? Yeah. So, um, crisis is a, is a very, uh, broad term. I think um, first off, uh, you know, we all go through uh, crises and um, and also if what might cause a crisis for me won't necessarily for the next person. And it's basically just, um, you know, it's when your coping skills are no longer able to, um, you're, you're just not coping, right? And so uh, a huge variety of reasons can lead to someone calling a crisis line. Um, definitely suicide is one, but actually the majority of the calls are not suicide related. Uh, there are people that call with long standing depression who aren't suicidal that will call people who feel isolated, um, people that are grieving, people that have lost someone to suicide. Um, schizophrenia is another reason that someone might call. Um, and also it is a resource that doctors will give their patients too for any reason, um, or not any reason, but for a whole ton of different reasons. And so, um, people can be calling out yeah, for a whole variety of things. Also for shelter, uh, people that might be looking for shelter, uh, victims of, um, domestic abuse. That's also very common. Um, child, uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, 
pretty varied, of course, what people are calling for. But in, and I know that there's no one answer for this, but for someone that hasn't called a crisis line before, what can they kind of expect the conversation to be like? What, like, what can you do for them? So in general, the conversation is very much led by the caller. Um, you know, there's, we would often say that, don't forget, this is the caller's call. And so on a crisis line, the crisis line worker is there primarily to provide non-judgmental support and really to listen and if um, relevant to provide resources and connections within the community that may be helpful to that caller. And then also, of course, um, you know, for any caller, the crisis line worker is doing a bit of a risk assessment too. If there is, you know, first off seeing is this person contemplating suicide or have they before? And then, um, you know, assessing the need for an immediate um, intervention. Mm-hmm. But um, lots of people call for just support and just to be able to talk to someone and get that, you know, unbiased, um, non-judgmental support that they maybe aren't getting, uh, you know, at home or from their friends or coworkers or whoever else that they, um, in their circle that they have to talk to. Right. Okay. You mentioned resources. Uh, so what kind of, without being too specific to the kind of crisis line you worked for, but what kind of resources can you provide to someone that's in crisis? Yeah. So, uh, Really, our, um, I should have said this earlier, but part of the role of a crisis line is whatever uh, region you may be uh, working within is to have access and know all of the resources um, for the communities. And of course, you know, your, the region may cover many, many, like hundreds of communities, and so you won't know all of them, but to have at your fingertips um, to, to have a list of what all the resources are in any of those communities, and then um, to be able to link someone to whatever is relevant. And so this could range from anything um, such as the the local um, CMHA to uh, the food bank to, um, to shelter for the night, uh, all sorts of things. So it really depends on what they're calling for. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite questions that I like to ask my interviewees as being someone that's going to work in healthcare, as are you, but for someone that works in primary care that maybe wants these resources, is there like an easy way to find them or is it just kind of trial and error? You just kind of have to get to know your community. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I know for certain communities, they have great databases online, which would be good to know about. Uh, other communities, I'm not so sure um, how easy it is. So, um, yeah, I'm. I, I would love to know too for the communities that I worked in. I, I could tell you specifically uh, where to go, and there are actually great um, resources for that. Resources for the resources. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a concept, eh? <laughs> uh, but other ones, I'm not sure. So, it's fair enough. It's a little bit outside your scope of practice, I suppose. Okay, um, so we're going to be working in healthcare. We're going to be doctors, right? Um, do you have any tips for people that work in healthcare for talking to people in crisis or talking down people in crisis? I could give um, potentially quite a few tips. Uh, let me think about maybe what kind of the, the biggest few are. Um, 
I think, you know, first off is just to be non-judgmental and just allow the space for the person to be in crisis and to just listen. And, you know, by allowing space, um, for example, if somebody is crying, just saying something as simple as, you know, it's okay. I'm here to listen when you're ready. Um, you know, and just, just telling the person it's okay and validating the fact that they are upset or, and of course, not everyone in crisis is going to be crying. I've just made that assumption, but whatever the situation is, you know, validating them or if they're, they're angry, you know, validating that anger and saying, you know, I can see that you're really upset about what's going on. You, you know, it seems like you're frustrated. Can you tell me more about that? Or, um, yeah, so really to validate and just listen and allow the person to feel what they're feeling. Okay. You know, it seems like such common sense, but I think in the actual moment, a lot of people just forget such a simple thing to do. Yeah. Well, I think we're so programmed to, to listen with the purpose of having a response or a solution, you know, um, we listen to people's problems and, and I mean, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but for myself, for sure, sometimes I'm, I'm always trying to think, okay, what's the solution or what can I do to help? And, you know, oftentimes the best thing that we can do to help is just to listen, you know, non-judgmentally and just to be supportive and listen to what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then let's say hypothetical situation, uh, listening and supporting just isn't enough and the person isn't calming down, then what, what other steps could you take, do you think? I guess it really depends on the situation. What kind of um, what kind of situation are you imagining when you're asking this question? Um, let's just say someone is actively considering suicide and they have their means and they're quite distressed. Let's say they're crying and you're listening to them and validating their concerns, but it's just it just doesn't seem to be enough and they are too far gone. Like, then what can you do? Okay, yeah. So first, I would you know spend as much time as you know, you feel is needed to, to talk to them and, uh, try to get a sense of what are all the reasons for dying? Why, you know, what has led them to be in this place right now? Why are they feeling the way they're feeling? And then after you have given them enough time to really share their story and tell you what's going on, I think it's, um, you know, that's the time to then ask what kind of positive things are going on. What are the reasons that they haven't, um, killed themselves? What reasons do they have for living? Mm -hmm. And then and that can be very, very helpful because it kind of turns, it turns the story a bit, right? It turns into one of empowerment and, um, you know, finding just a little bit of positivity in the situation or the, maybe the one positive thing that's going on for that person mm -hmm. at that time that you can then, you know, focus on and build on. Yeah. The strengths and their reason to live. Hey, mm-hmm why they're still here rather than just not having called the line at all and just doing it. Hey, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you find that the way that you word things is important? Like I've heard a lot of things about how you shouldn't say that you understand their situation. Cause of course you don't understand their situation. Right. So what part does, uh, the wording of the conversation play in this? Uh, yeah, I think wording is very important, but I think maybe even more than the exact words that you choose is really the intention and the, the tone of voice. Um, definitely, as you pointed out, saying I understand can be a huge trigger for people, and it's it's my pet peeve. We should never say that we understand what someone's going through. Um, 
but you know, even if you accidentally do say that, um, but in such a way that in a, in a genuine sort of, um, non-judgmental kind of caring way, it's probably, it might be okay. Um, and even if they point you out for it, then apologizing. And, you know, I think that's actually a huge point too, is if you say something and if it's, you know, misinterpreted in some way, um, it's, it's always, it's always a good idea to apologize and, you know, explain what you meant because, um, yeah, people, people will get a sense of if you're there, you know, truly out of the right interest and, um, because you really do genuinely want to help them, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. This sounds like it was a really hard skill to learn. Like there's, there seems to be a lot of nuances and a lot of kind of things that you know you shouldn't, shouldn't do, but it's very highly guided by how the conversation goes. Did you find that there was a bit of a learning curve in learning this kind of flow? I mean, I think, I think definitely over time, you know, you reflect after a call and you think, oh yeah, I think it would have been better if I said this, or, you know, at that time, maybe this would have been the appropriate response. Um, and, but I, I think that's also kind of the exciting part of that. And, you know, being in healthcare and, um, the field that we're going into the fact that it's the learning curve never ends, right? There's always more you can learn. And that's kind of how I felt is you, you have a, a toolbox and then you're learning to, to somewhat, you'll never master it, but sort of you're on the path to mastering how to use those tools and pull out the right, the right ones at the right time. And, and what I mean by tools, I guess, is, you know, your tools of active listening, validating, reflecting, um, just actually silence is a huge tool and uh, asking, asking clarifying questions and all of those things. And so, yeah, there is a learning curve, but um, again, the training, you get a lot of training and um, so you, you already go in with all the tools that you need. And then over time, you kind of, you also develop your own style. I think everyone has a very different way, um, even on a crisis line on how to, um, how to, how to work with callers and how to, um, sort of navigate the call, um, so I think that uh, one myth with crisis lines is that they are scripted. And, you know, I've heard people or people have asked me, like, are calls scripted? Do you have a script that you follow in certain things that you have to say? And absolutely not. Uh, there is no scripting that goes into a crisis line. We go through training and then and, and that's it. So, uh, you know, anytime you call and if you call more than once or many times, in fact, you're never going to get the same call again. Chances are it's going to be some someone different. And even if you do get the same person, you know, it's a whole new call. And um, yeah, we are not scripted at all. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned a few times, like kind of how extensive your training was, and you've talked about uh, some specific things that you some specific tips for talking to people in crisis, like validating and drawing on strengths. But say you were teaching a training session today. Do you have any other like general tips that you would give for guiding a call or managing a call? I guess it's hard to say. Hey, Yeah. Um, I sort of uh, alluded to this a bit earlier, but um, silence is a really powerful tool. And I think, you know, if you've, you've been validating someone and the reasons for calling, or, you know, maybe you're in an, in your office and somebody's really upset and you've been validating why they're upset and, you know, you've been maybe reflecting and kind of doing all those things and, and you just don't know what to say, try silence, you know, just 
sit there, your body language is important, or on a line, it's all about your tone of voice. Uh, but you know, just leave, leave some space and it's the perfect opportunity for you to collect your thoughts, but also for that other person to collect their thoughts and, you know, maybe realize, uh, what they haven't told you or what they think you need to know, or it's also an opportunity to sort of redirect the call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you mean by redirect the call? Uh, so by redirect the call, what I'm getting at is, uh, you know, for example, somebody might be uh, talking about in a situation at home and how stressed out they are and um, all the things that are going wrong at home. And, you know, they get an opportunity to kind of think about, um, you know, what they have told you, what they haven't told you, and to realize that actually the real problem is is at work. And so it's an opportunity to re- redirect it and actually focus on what the, the primary problem is and it's just manifesting at home. Or alternatively, if you have somebody who is uh, really depressed, for example, and up until now you've been talking about all the reasons for uh, for not living, it might be the perfect opportunity after giving some silence to try to transition and to then focus on to the positive things and um, the reasons that they have for living and to kind of change the um, change the, the direction from, you know, discussing all the things that are going wrong into kind of turning it into empowerment and what can we do to move forward. So it's almost like they have these, uh, hidden issues that they haven't really had a chance to bring up yet. Yeah. In some cases it can be, um, for sure. And so it's, it's a perfect opportunity for them to get their thoughts together and for you to also get your thoughts together and realize what you haven't covered yet. Or sometimes that's the time when I'd find, that I would pick up on something or I might have noticed a strange wording that the person had used or I'd put together, hey, you know, they've been talking about this, but why haven't they mentioned this yet? You know, maybe I should probe this more. And um, oftentimes you can kind of get something out of that. And, you know, I think that's just something maybe worth mentioning is it's often what about what somebody's saying, but it can also be just as much about what are they not saying. Right. So do you think that the beginning of the call would be something like the caller kind of probing you to see kind of if they can trust uh, to talk to you about something else that may be bothering them, something that maybe goes a little bit deeper? And that's what the silence gives them space to bring that up? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm not sure that that's what I was getting at, but definitely I definitely had that experience where you kind of uh, sometimes you even feel like you're almost being tested by the person or sort of putting little, almost like little feelers out there and seeing how you handle them and trying to just sort of get a sense of, are you comfortable with them? For example, breaching the topic of suicide. And sometimes you want to, um, you know, you kind of play by ear and sometimes you might kind of want to wait and let them sort of um, feel things out and let them be comfortable and bring it up. And then other times, if they're not, you kind of, um, then maybe with that redirection, that's the time to, to then bring that up and say, you know, I, you said these things and these things have me a little bit worried. Are you thinking about suicide? Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. All right. So we've talked a lot about um, kind of what your calls look like and what the callers kind of look like. Uh, now I want to talk about you. Uh, this seems like a very emotionally taxing job. Uh, what do you think is the most difficult part of doing this kind of work? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it, it's a huge privilege. It was a huge privilege for me to volunteer on the crisis line and um, just for people to be able to trust you and to share with you and to really, um, you know, bring you in on what's going on in their lives. But on the flip side of that, of course, a lot of really painful things come up. And I heard things that I 
probably never before would have imagined and just really, you know, really difficult, like heart wrenching things. And um, so I think for sure, at first, it was a pretty big adjustment learning how to, to not take that home. And of course, you don't not take that home. But, you know, the idea of getting being able with almost checking it at the door when you leave, and so that you you don't get burnt out. Um, and so that, I think for me, that was definitely a bit of a learning curve, learning how, how to, um, how to be okay hearing those things and sort of processing them and then being able to kind of leave it and also, um, maintaining that, that ability to listen to everyone and give them the same empathy. Um, even when, you know, you might've just already heard some pretty hard things and, you put the, the phone down and then it rings again. And, you know, maybe you're not quite ready to have another really emotionally charged conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. So how did you, uh, how did you manage that? Like what kind of techniques did you use to leave it at the door? Yeah. Um, so at first I will admit I was not very good at it. Uh, you know, we did in training, we covered this as well. Like we did a whole module on self-care and discussing how to, to kind of do that and develop, I guess, sort of build those skills. But at first, it was really like I would oftentimes drive home and then I'd even sit in my garage, not quite ready to go inside yet because I was still processing things. And oftentimes I'd get off fairly late at night and I would get home and I'd be like, I can't turn my, I just can't turn my brain off. And so I would watch like an hour or two hours of TV. And I'm not someone who usually watches TV before bed or not at that period in my life anyway. And, but I found that I would need to do that just to kind of, um, just to kind of get my mind off of it so that I can, then could sleep. And I very quickly realized that that was not, that was not um, good self-care. And so I think for me, what I learned is really important. And we, we learned this in training too, but I had to learn it firsthand to realize it, was that if something affected me, I needed to talk about it and right then and there. And then so that I could leave, um, leave my shift having kind of, left it there, like processed it, dealt with it, and then able to go home and then focus on what was going on at home, not focus on the shift that had happened. And so I think the biggest thing for me was having those people like my um, colleagues and being comfortable with talking to them after a difficult call. And sometimes it's just, you know, like a two minute conversation to just kind of recap it a bit and, you know, maybe kind of feel like, okay, I made the right calls, like made the right decisions, I handled it the way I was supposed to, or, you know, to feel that yes, I, I did my best and I um, I provided the best support that I could to that person or you know whatever the situation was. And so that then when I did leave, I would be able to go home and then focus on my home life. And um, so yeah, I think talking to people was key. And then sometimes it was also like setting those boundaries for myself. Like we learned a lot about setting boundaries with other people and like with callers. And sometimes you have to set boundaries with yourself. And so for me, it was I would say, okay, I have until the end of the shift to think about this. I can talk about somebody that then I when I leave, I'm I'm done. Or and sometimes that wasn't practical because you might get a call right at the end of the shift and then on those in those days it would be, okay, I have to drive home to finish processing this. And then when I get home, I'm just gonna check it and leave it there. Mm-hmm. What about times that you didn't have the opportunity to talk it out like you said you hang up the phone and it immediately rings again was was there any like quick method of that just to tide you over through the next call uh yeah I think at that point it was just acknowledging okay I'm going to think and deal with this previous call when I have the time but right now 
the phone is ringing, there's somebody else on the other end of the line that, that they're calling, they're relying on getting this, um, the support that they need. And so now I need to put my attention 100% on them and um, almost just kind of like clean slate, start over. But remember that I will revisit the previous call later if I need to. Mm-hmm. That sounds very similar to what we're taught as medical students is the importance of debriefing in order to be able to leave it, leave whatever you've seen or whatever you've heard in that day um, and then go home not thinking about it or at least not letting it get to you too much. Yeah, I think for sure. So would you say that this is something, this practice is something that's going to help you in your future medical career? I mean, I hope so. I am sure that third year and fourth year will be a whole host of different challenges that we'll face. But uh, definitely, I think for myself, I learned the importance of debriefing. So I hope that I'll be able to continue doing that and, you know, remembering to do that when I need to moving forward. I think you've got a leg up on a lot of med students who don't have the experience um, in using debriefing to in this sort of way. Like I have not. (laughs) I feel like you have a lot of experience on me in that department. So I think that'll be good. Yeah, I think, um, to be honest, I didn't debrief with one of my colleagues until, I can't remember how long into it was, but it was definitely several shifts before. And then I, and I'd had actually a handful of difficult calls very early on. And then there was just one shift and I was like, okay, I have to talk to someone. But it took me a while to, to get to the point of just doing that. And um, so that, that for me was a bit of a, um, a lesson and yeah the first time it was difficult then it just becomes normal and then you just um, would debrief kind of almost it just became a part of the process before you leave you would debrief and then and then go home and so I think I would imagine it'll be like that and you know moving forward in our training as well it might be kind of first the, hard the first couple of times almost just to accept that you need to talk to someone else and um, and then it just becomes natural yeah It's a learning process, but I'm hoping I'll get the hang of it when I need it the most next year. I think the other thing about that, too, that I learned is sometimes you'll have a call and there's just something nagging at you and you can't put your finger on it. And you're like, oh, no, no, it's fine. But I think even if there's just a little something there, talk about it um, right away, because if you kind of deal with it right away, it's much easier than leaving it over time and then realizing that it's still affecting you, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, if that makes sense. So even if you're not sure if you need to talk about it, you know, if there's something kind of bugging you, I think it's good to talk to someone else, you know, within, of course, a circle of care or someone who's appropriate to talk to about it. That's actually what I wanted to bring up was, uh, I know there can be confidentiality issues with things like this. So who did you find that you could talk to? Yeah, so we only could talk within um, within the circle of crisis line workers. Like, you can't bring that stuff home. And even within that, of course, confidentiality is a huge issue. So, you know, when you talk about something, you're not going to give the full story or all the details. You're not going to give identifying information. So you're just going to, for me, it would be focusing on, you know, what was it that triggered me or what was I unsure about? Or, you know, sometimes it would be like, wanting to run something by someone given like a hypothetical similar situation. How would you handle this? Do you think I handled it correctly? That kind of thing. Okay. Got you. um, So obviously a very difficult job to do. uh, But what were kind of the rewarding aspects of doing this job? What just really like touched your heart? Yeah. um, I think 
you know, there were a lot of calls where you'd see like a huge difference from the start to the end of the call where um, somebody would be feeling really, really down or really overwhelmed or whatever the situation was. And it was really rewarding when you could allow that person the space and really allow them to talk about what was going on. And, you know, they might tell you that you were the first person that they've um, trusted with this information or, you know, shared what's been really going on for them because they don't necessarily have that non-biased um, person in their life that they can talk to about. Um, and then by the end of the call to just to see almost like a 180 from someone who was really down to feeling like, you know what, I, I have a plan. I'm going to do this and this and that to get, you know, this always makes me feel better and I'm going to do this tonight and tomorrow I'm going to do that. And this is how I'm going to, you know, take care of myself or these are the steps or, you know, these are the people that I'm going to see to help me, you know, feeling better. And so I think that that was hugely rewarding was seeing the, it's obviously a very small difference, but the difference that you can make for that person in that moment. So it seems like you can see kind of the lowest person, the, the lowest point of someone's life, but then also see the true resilience that also exists within people. I imagine that'd be pretty inspirational. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you're just, you're just helping remind them that they have the tools, you know, they're doing the work. You're just, you're just there to help support them and empower them to figure out you know, what's right for them and the solution for them, which is really, really cool to see. Mm -hmm. uh, so changing gears a little bit, this is just something I've always wondered. What do you think is the role of a crisis line within the circle of care for someone that's using the crisis line? Like, how do you think um, the line works with primary care physicians or other people that this person might be seeing? Do you think there's a relationship? Yeah, uh, for sure. I think, I think in fact, you know, for some callers, that's they would get our number from their um, family physician or a social worker or someone, you know, in their their circle of care. And I think the the huge role is, you know, we're available when the the family doctor isn't, or you know, maybe you're unwell but not you're feeling you know down and feeling unwell but not quite to the point that you want to go to emerge, for example. Um, then that's, that's the role of the crisis line in the middle of the night or late in the evening, or, you know, you might already have a doctor's appointment for the next week, but just to kind of help you get there. And, you know, for some people, if you're, yeah, you know yourself and you have anxiety or depression, sometimes you just really need to talk to someone, um, to help you get over a little, just, just to get through something. And then, and again, you know, life happens and it never happens nine to five when people are available. Right. Yeah. So I think that's the huge role of the crisis line is available 24 seven. And in those kind of acute or sometimes not as acute, um, situations when someone else isn't available. Oh, that's great to hear. Cause I don't know, sometimes I think of a crisis line being isolated. Like they, you guys have the conversation and then they hang up and it's done, but it's really not. It's a, it's part of the whole circle of care, hopefully for that caller. Mm -hmm. Yes. I should clarify though. There isn't communication. I don't think this is what you meant, but there isn't oh. communication from the, the crisis line back to any of the other um, people in the, the patients or not the patient, but the person's medical circle of care. But, um, but for sure. Yeah. The crisis line can work alongside all of the other um, people and things in place. 
Oh yeah, I, under, I totally understand the the confidentiality thing too. I just meant kind of working in harmony with each other. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, so Abby, uh, for someone that might need a crisis line, you mentioned that they can get it from that get the numbers from their doctors or social worker. But uh, where else can people get information about what crisis lines are available or what crisis services are available? and phone numbers and contact information? Uh, Google. And <laughs> <laughs> definitely, like, if you Google in your area crisis line, a ton of numbers will come up, and then, you know, you can pick one. There's uh, oftentimes, well, I think we have, like, a provincial suicide line as well. So you can call that one or the crisis line, whether it's suicide or something else, you know, whichever one you feel most comfortable calling. Um, and it's often on... Payphones almost are non-existent now, of course, <laughs> but I know that uh, they used to be on a lot of payphones as well, it would say them. Um, but definitely if you Google it, and then I think uh, the number is on a lot of like pamphlets and resources um, as well that you might see in doctor's offices or wherever else too. Okay, so that's all the questions that I had, Abby. Do you have any closing statements for our audience tonight? I don't think so, other than thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Alyssa. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. And to everyone that's listening, uh, thank you so much for being here, and I hope to see you next time. Have a good night.